Welcome to the Med Street Journal. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Med Street Journal podcast. I am your host, as always, Rodney Hu, and today I'm joined by a very special guest today, Mr. Blake Adams. He is the VP of Marketing for Florence Healthcare, and he is the VP of Marketing, like I said, where he leads marketing, strategy, analytics, and the sales development teams for Florence Healthcare. He's got more than six years in executive leadership roles in healthcare technology. He's passionate about helping research teams advance cures by introducing them to innovative software solutions. And so I'm excited to kind of dive into this topic a little bit more and have him as a guest. So with that being said, Blake, welcome to the podcast. Rodney, thank you. Excited to be on with you today and dive in a little bit to what we're doing at Florence and and what uh, research is is happening in the research space. Awesome. Yeah. So let's just jump into it, man. Why don't you Give the listeners a quick background of who you are and how you ended up in this clinical research field. For sure, for sure. So yeah, you you mentioned there in the intro, I've been with healthcare technology companies for a while. Florence is a relatively young company. We started in late 2014 and I joined in mid-2017 as we were just starting the commercialization phase as one of the first 10 employees. So it's been really neat to see the growth of Florence over the last four years. We are a company that focuses on driving and streamlining operations in clinical research, specifically around research sites. So the place where the research is getting done, places, academic medical centers, hospital health systems, a little over 8,500 sites in 34 countries are on our platform now. And then we also work with pharmaceutical companies, med device companies, CROs that are managing clinical trials to remotely connect them to their research sites. So essentially we connect clinical research globally on a remote platform is what we do here at Florence. And to your question of how I got into it, you know, I I was in healthcare for a while in a clinic setting, uh, leading marketing and growth for kind of a health system. Moved out of that into a uh, revenue cycle management company where I was leading a a large part of marketing uh, for a while. And then Ron Jones, our CEO here at Florence, asked if I would be willing to come help start a company and and kind of grow a company. And I, I jumped at the opportunity because I love building things from scratch. So it's been a lot of fun here at Florence over the last four years to build uh, what we've had success building. Ah, okay. That's awesome. So you're kind of the guy who helps build that foundation and grow it and get kind of amplify the value that you guys are creating, right? That's right. You know, it's uh, building things from scratch is a lot of fun because you really can, it's a lot of work and a lot of, of hard work to get it to where it wants to be. And, you know, you go through those struggles of nobody having any clue who you are four years ago to being able to build a category and, and really build a, an area that had not been digitized before as we're thinking about digital transformation and research. So it's been a lot of fun and, and being the only marketer from 2017 to roughly 2019 and then now we're a team of, of six full-time. We're hiring three more or four more right now. So we'll be at about 10 full-time on the marketing team. And then obviously we have a lot of outside agencies we partner with. And so it's been really neat to see that growth over the last four years. Uh, and it's been fun to be a part of that team. Ah, okay. That's awesome. It's a cool little background, kind of who you guys are and kind of how you guys are growing. Um, but when it comes to clinical research, who is it exactly that you guys can help and who really benefits off of what you guys are doing? For sure. So, you know, our founder, when he started this journey, along with a couple of our founders, the goal was to really streamline operations for people getting work done. So 
we're, we're not a big fancy, you know, crazy consumer focused company where it, it's dropping the latest iPhone and people go nuts about what we build. We really focus on these mundane tasks that nobody really wants to talk about. I always kid that nobody got into clinical research to manage documents, yet the average CRC clinical research coordinator, who's kind of the the worker in clinical trials can spend up to half or more of their day just moving papers around and, and copying data from one system to another. And so nobody got in, in research to do that, right? And so we help people who are task-oriented individuals at the research side. And then for sponsors, CROs, medical device companies, pharmaceutical companies that are actually managing that clinical trial, historically how those operate, Rodney, for those who maybe don't know listening to the podcast is the CRA, a clinical research associate, gets put on an airplane once or twice a month to go visit every single research sites in a, in a study. And so if, if, you know, a major pharma companies running a study, they may be running that at a thousand research sites globally. They're going to have CRAs visiting those sites in person to collect documents, review documents, visit the site personnel, check quality and quality assurance. Well, as you know, Rodney, and as the listeners know, COVID happened in, in February of last year and the ability to get on airplanes or walk into hospitals and health systems was severely limited. And so we also connect those CRAs, those pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies remotely to their research sites so they can access that those documents and data in real time that formerly they were having to send people on site to access. So that's a little bit of how we help the industry and drive some of that standardization. And then I'll share a bit more. I know you got a few more questions, Rodney, about what that looked like in 2020 and how we kind of helped with some of the COVID studies. Yeah, I mean... That's pretty interesting. <laughs> I didn't realize like how much travel that somebody has to go through. I feel like COVID really disrupted that whole <laughs> game plan pretty much. And it's absolutely, you know, a lot of studies, if you follow the space, a lot of clinical studies were put on hold at the beginning of, of COVID. And I don't have the number in front of me, but a lot of them were put on hold and it was, a, it was an overwhelming percentage of critical studies, right? So, so thinking about oncology or, or cardiovascular studies or these really important clinical trials to find advancement in research had to be all but stopped when COVID hit because those CRAs and CRCs were no longer able to visit the research sites. And even beyond that, Rodney, patients were no longer able to come on site, especially at the height of COVID when it was, whoa, I'm not going near the hospital because you know that's, that's where there's potential to catch something. And so these patients who were participating in clinical trials stopped visiting the research site. And that really created a lot of, of what they call protocol deviations in research, but, but things that were not supposed to happen in clinical trials started happening. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to see the industry pivot the last year. And, and you know, I would say you often hear this, I'm sure Rodney on, on media where the typical uh, industry has probably advanced three to four years. When you think about e-commerce or you think about some of those spaces, uh, you know, Amazon, I think online shopping has, has increased what we thought it would increase in four years. Research is probably closer to 10 years, Rodney, when we think about how much digital transformation has had to happen uh, in 10 years. For instance, we worked with a major pharma company to, uh, to roll out their COVID study. And as part of that, they had 20 sites in Australia that were coming on board. And those 20 sites in Australia were entire, entirely paper-based in the beginning of last year. Everything they did was on paper. They had no computer systems, you know, obviously email and stuff, but no computer-based systems. 
And within three days, they had to pivot to everything being electronic so they could participate in this COVID study. That tra- transformation and, and rapid rate of transformation, Rodney, would not have happened uh, just a year and a half ago. It, it would not have been the case. It would have been a three-year process of thinking about it and, and walking through it. So it's been really interesting to see that transformation. Dang. Okay. So that's kind of a silver lining, I guess, if you want to look at COVID that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's always hard to say that. And I think, you know, Amy Abernathy of the FDA uh, said it really well recently, which is we're kind of living in a great experiment right now. And and the hope is that we walk out of this experiment as a clinical research industry, learning things we can take forward with us post COVID and, and find some of these efficiencies we were able to uncover by moving to a digital environment. And the hope is that we don't just leave the COVID environment and, and not take any of that with us, but really, as you said, silver lining, take things with us that advance other kind of cures. As we think about oncology medicines, the average trial in oncology is over seven years. And so how do you shrink those timelines and start really doing things like we did with COVID, where we had a vaccine in, in mere months, which is unheard of in the clinical research space. Huh, okay. And so... Listening to you talk, I hear a lot of like the value that you guys are adding and what you're doing as far as like remote connectivity. And my question for you is how much like resistance did you face when dealing with other sites or other healthcare professionals who were used to the normal and having somebody on site, but now having to transition to that new normal? Um, So can you kind of walk us through any obstacles or any resistance that you noticed? Yeah, for sure. You know, Back in 2017, when I joined the company, the idea of moving from paper to an electronic-based system in the healthcare environment was met with major resistance. So it was, you know, RE signatures allowed is a great example, right? So, so physicians and what it's called principal investigators and research, the doctor responsible for leading that study at the research site said, whoa, is this even allowed by the FDA? And so the questions in 2017, 2018 really focused on, can we even do this as an industry? Can we move off of paper into an electronic environment? And so, yeah, the resistance is real. And and a lot of times what you find is part of it is because of just nobody likes to change, right? The adoption curve, there's there's that uh, valley of despair and people enter that and they don't want to come out. But the other half of that is we are in a highly regulated industry, as all healthcare is, but clinical research even more so, where it's not just HIPAA and it's not just um, those those type regulations, but you're thinking FDA or European agencies or, or other agencies that are monitoring the outcome of that clinical trial, which could mean not only a trial progressing into being available for, for uh, a med- medicine that, that people can use without being in the trial, but it also means millions of dollars a day for a pharma company, right? So, so the, the risk of a document being misplaced can mean five days of delay, which for a pharma company, that could mean they're not first to market. And so there's a lot of risk, not only on the healthcare side, but on the, the financial side when it comes to uh, a lot of these operations. And so, yeah, resistance to change is big. And I will say with that, though, COVID forced a lot of change because these principal investigators who formerly said we can't do e-signatures, well, now you can't take a piece of paper from room to room and every doctor pick it up and sign it, right? Because you're you're transmitting, uh, potentially to transmit COVID. And so that really forced a lot of these antiquated systems to to move forward and bro- broke some of those log jams of resistance. Ah, interesting. And so... For those who are unfamiliar with how 
the research process is, especially with clinical trials. Can you kind of give us like a high level walkthrough of kind of what it's like, especially like before it's available to the public? Because I feel like, especially with talking with COVID and stuff like that, people are like, oh, how does how do we get this vaccine so fast? <laughs> or is it is it even worth it or it's dangerous? Like, yeah. Know? Definitely, Rodney. You know, we uh, it's funny prior what I did prior to to COVID. Not a lot of people ask me at, at family get togethers what I did all day. Right. Because clinical research, what's that? Uh, and, and that highlights a little bit too, Rodney, what we've talked about in the past, which is only three percent of of patients participate in clinical trials. So it's a really reduced segment of group uh, that focuses on it. Well, now post-COVID, you know, I go to dinner parties or, or I go to my family get-togethers and they say, now, what do you do? And I'm like, oh yeah, we help with clinical research. You know, Pfizer's one of our clients. We, we helped advance the Pfizer study. And they say, oh yeah, tell me more about phase two. And you're like, whoa, Oh, you know what phase two is? And so, yeah, to, to echo that, Rodney, you know, the average clinical trial can be anywhere from seven plus years, especially as you think about complicated clinical trials. And what that looks like is once the medicine has reached a, a, a stage in, in the research side, which is happening at, at a scientific level, we don't really deal with that. We deal once it goes to clinic, which is when they're actually testing it in human, human subjects. A typical trial follows a couple of phases. As we think about where we come into the mix, we, we focus on clinical operations. So we're not really focused on that scientific side uh, where they're discovering the medicine. We're focused on when they're testing testing that medicine or that medical device or, or vaccine. And so those kind of follow three phases. Phase one being in the area of, is this safe? And is, and is it gonna be okay to test in a larger group? Those can be really small patient populations. Then it rolls into phase two where we start testing efficiency. Is this actually effective? Then we roll usually into the large phase three studies, which are thousands and thousands of patients to test it against placebos. Is this vaccine actually reducing um, you know, the spread of COVID? And that's what we heard so much about over the last six months uh, with we think about COVID or uh, Pfizer or Moderna or some of those is, all right, is this 96% efficient or effective, right? We heard that a lot or 98% effective. That's what's being found in these phase three trials. And then there is the phase four, which is observational trials, Rodney, which is often once that thing actually goes to market and, and it's available, they'll continue what's called observational trials just to make sure that, hey, yeah, we tested it over the period of a year, COVID especially, that was rapidly accelerated. Uh, and had a you know emergency use authorization where we're still going to continue to observe those studies long term, and so Florence really helps in those clinical operations areas to manage those the volumes of data that are generated throughout the course of that trial. Ah, oh, okay, dang, that's crazy. And so, people who are getting the vaccines now, like those people aren't taking placebos, right? Those are actual like vaccines that were been tried and tested, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, the way, the way that it kind of is rolling out now is, is that COVID vaccine for Pfizer, Moderna, and I know there's a few others received emergency use authorization, Rodney. And so they're able to be used outside of the clinical trial. However, there are patients who, who opt to go down the clinical trial route, even still. And I was talking with a health center in Seattle, Washington, and, you know, she said that a lot of their patients say, yeah, we want to actually go the clinical trial route, 
because we want to have observation beyond the 30 minutes that we sit in the clinic after getting the shot. So a clinical trial, they're going to get observed and put into a system and watched for six months, nine months, 12 months. And so even during COVID, we find patients that are saying, hey, yeah, I actually want to go through the clinical trial route of getting this vaccine. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, that's kind of how the, the COVID vaccine. And that's rare that there's those emergency youth authorizations, but it does happen, especially for critical things like the COVID vaccine. Okay. So yeah, you said the emergency use. So what, and then you mentioned before that the average trial takes like five to seven years or something like that. So like what would qualify a trial for like rapid acceleration? Like what sort of criteria needs to be met? Yeah. You know, I I wish Rodney, I had a lot of great information on that. I don't right with this one in particular, COVID, we were, it's a little bit different of a trial than trying to find like a new oncology study, right? It was kind of based off of, especially as you look at Moderna, based off of things that existed as we think about the mRNA and all of those various uh, medical advancements that were happening. And so it wasn't starting from scratch. And the other thing, Rodney, that really accelerated the COVID vaccine, well, there's really two other things. One is unprecedented collaboration uh, amongst sponsor companies and sites so that you typically don't see that because at the end of the day they they are competitors right they're both they're both trying to compete but covid really forced collaboration and because of that there was transparency there was conversations happening in rooms that never would have happened prior to covid and so collaboration was a big element of it and the third element of it was there was just such a vast patient population willing to participate in clinical trials. So typically the biggest delay to a clinical trial, Rodney, is finding the amount of, of patients that are needed to prove the value of that trial. So, you know, as you think about a really rare disease or they call it orphan drugs in clinical research, something that doesn't have a huge patient population where there may be only 10 people a year, right, that are diagnosed with that, it's really hard to find the patients and get them enrolled into the study. And so that typically is the biggest reason for delays in clinical trials, where with COVID, it was everywhere. And, and there were thousands and millions and, and millions of people that could participate in the trial. And so that those three things worked together. The science was really advanced. There was unprecedented collaboration. And then patients were readily available to participate in the trial. Uh, okay. And so is that kind of where your guys come in or your platform comes in where you connect the people who are developing the trials to people who can participate? Yeah. So right now we focus primarily on that second group, which collaboration between the sponsor and the site. We do have some patient facing capabilities, but there's, there's terms in research. Uh, Decentralized trials is something you'll probably start hearing about Rodney as you talk to folks in this area, Uh, hybrid trials, virtual trials, and those are, are more direct to patient trials, which is the patient can self-enroll into a clinical trial directly with sometimes the pharmaceutical medical device company. We tend to work more in the working with large research sites uh, that are massive integrated health systems. And so that we focus more on that second area, which is the collaboration between sponsors uh, and sites and how they operate clinical trials. Okay. Uh, that makes a little bit more sense. And so... When it comes to like the whole like collaboration part, I think it's interesting how you guys are expanding like clinical trial access to like underrepresented groups. Um, So I kind of want to give you an opportunity to kind of speak on that and how you guys are going about um, doing that. Yeah, definitely, Rodney. You know, historically, and I mentioned it earlier in our conversation, three percent of of patient of eligible patients participate in clinical research. 
And in order for us to grow and expand, that's that can't continue to happen. And so when we talk about expanding research, we talk about it really in two ways. One is just in pure finding more people to participate in research. And the second is increasing the diversity in clinical research. So diversity, not only in um, the ethnicity side of things, but also in the rural population side of things. So I was on the phone recently with um, University of New Mexico and, you know, their big challenge is they, they deal a lot with uh, Native American populations that live on reservations that don't have access sometimes to uh, technology. Their nearest clinic is four hours away. And so they're really reluctant to participate in clinical trials because, you know, if you've got to drive into, into a major health system every week to, to get a blood test to see how that medicine's progressing, it may not be practical. And so historically, that 3% is usually concentrated in very urban areas because you look at major, and I'm here in Atlanta, so you look at Emory, which is a major research center. And so it's easy to get to, there's a ton of population right here around Emory, but my hometown up in extreme North Georgia, two and a half hours away from Atlanta, there's not any research that goes on because they don't have major hospital health systems. So there's this idea of yes, expanding it with diversity in the traditional sense of it, but also expanding it with diversity, meaning reach and the ability to reach patients. And so that also increases things like we talked about with finding patients who fit the criteria for a clinical trial, where you may be needing, especially now that we talk about precision medicine is something you hear a lot, which are these cancer drugs, T-cell therapies, you know, you've probably heard about CAR-T, these things that require really unique identifiers in a patient. And you're now able to expand the scope of where you can recruit those patients. So I'm again, here in Georgia, super in, in South Georgia, maybe wasn't an, an open patient population, but now can be through technology. And the way that works right now, what we're focused on is by empowering those clinics that are not at major health systems to participate in research. So now they can be digitally connected into other research sites to create things like remote monitoring, remote site access, or remote capabilities that allow them to participate in clinical research at those sites that are outside of major hubs of, of traditional research. Ah, okay. And so because like everyone's like remotely connected, it kind of, like you had mentioned before, it really streamlines, streamlines the operations. And so like, what are some results of having those operations streamlined, whether it's like getting results faster or collaborating with more people, yeah. reaching a wider audience, you know? For sure. So, you know, we focus primarily on the operational side of a clinical trial, Rodney. And so when we look at metrics, we look at things like how fast does a document get signed? Now, that may not seem that important, but when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, signatures are critical in this space because you're really saying, yes, I'm the doctor, I approve of this, you know, this protocol that's going to get launched. Well, one of our major research centers, uh, you know, theirs was averaging four to six weeks uh, in the time it took from a document to show up in their inbox to it being signed by the principal investigator. And that was because they were a large health system where it took them two hours to drive out to that PI and get a document signed. Well, that means that that trial can't start for six weeks because now they've got to wait on that signature, which now delays the start of that trial for six weeks, which could mean for a patient who's suffering from a, a, a disease that this trial could potentially help 
cure, six weeks could be the, the difference between life and death, right? And so that is where we focus is on those operational metrics, which are a little harder to think about in the context of number of lives impacted or, or traditional healthcare metrics. But we really focus on what are those operational metrics. And Rodney, you know, what we find is typically a 40% acceleration in study startup, so how fast a study can get started and actually have patients begin enrolling in the trial, we typically find around a 40% increase there. And then there's some other efficiencies, patient safety gains and things of that nature that uh, that we monitor on the, on the back end. But really, it's around operational efficiency for us. Oh, okay, okay. And so, man, you're like the marketing guy, so you know how to take all this information that you guys are doing all this value and putting it out into the public and really attracting the right audience towards you. So my question for you is like, how are you going about educating your market and what sort of content or strategies have you used that's kind of worked for you? Yeah, I love it, Rodney, diving into now my, I know clinical research, but I love marketing as well. And I'm, I'm glad you're diving into that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's been really cool at, at Florence, right? We market to clinical operations professionals. So we don't really market to patients and participants. And what we found is we're creating a new category. As we've talked about through this whole conversation, the ability to connect remotely has not really been a technology that's been bought in this space. And so for us, it's a lot of education, Rodney, where it's, hey, we need to just get out there and we're not going to go sing the praises of Florence and try to get somebody to buy Florence. We just need to go help the industry understand how much better moving into a remote environment will be for their operations. Now, we hope that Florence indirectly benefits from that, but we care a lot about creating community around digital transformation and research. How do we create people that really care about advancing research? And Rodney, I think the coolest thing I've found in healthcare versus some other areas I've been in the past, is there is a really strong sense of collaboration, even amongst competitors that we talked about earlier, because at the end of the day, we're all in this for really noble reasons, which is to advance medical cures and advanced research and help people. And so I love that because, you know, we just had a, a collaboration the other day with about 15 of our key customers that came on these are large academic medical centers, oftentimes in the same areas of the country that maybe are, quote unquote, competing for attention or competing for con sponsor studies in the traditional business sense of the word. But they're on there and they're sharing real ideas around how to advance their operations, because at the end of the day, we all want to see cancer solved. We all want to see these, you know, dementia and Parkinson's and all these diseases solved. And the only way we're going to do that is by collaborating across the industry. So that's where we spend a lot of our time, Rodney, is educating the space. And then, of course, if we were to dive deep into marketing, there's a lot around, you know, how we actually use channels to do that and, and how we work with agencies to help us with our positioning and messaging. But that's where we spend a lot of our time. Uh, it's funny, like listening to you um, talk about like collaboration and working with other people, whether it's competitors or not. It reminds me of like Planet of the Apes, where Caesar he was like, apes together strong <laughs> or like that saying like if you want to go fast go alone but if you want to go yep. far go together um, uh, so I, I love that i think that's awesome what you guys are doing but i mean for people who are in the clinical research field like what are some questions that they should be asking that they're not or like what what are some problems that are happening in the industry that maybe most people aren't aware of that they should be focusing on 
Yeah, you know, interoperability, Rodney, is probably the word I would I would champion and stake, you know, the next five years on. And, and interoperability being integrations between systems at the research site and the sponsor. And so what's happening right now is there seems to be a new vendor that that's popping up every day in clinical research, right? I, I hear an announcement of, oh, we, we now do this, we knew that, we have this, we have that. And all these are really great and they can all advance um, – uh, medical cures, they can all advance research. But what sites and sponsors need to really be thinking about is how all these systems will talk to each other in the future. Because what we don't want to do is have eight different platforms at the research site, all doing different functions and either having to be repetitive and, and copy the same information into all eight systems or be lacking insights that are available in one system that could help another system do a better job at, at analyzing data, for instance. And so I think interoperability, Rodney, is something that the industry is starting to think more about. But historically, this space, as we think about EMRs, right, electronic medical records, they really tend to be very closed ecosystems. And part of that is because of compliance and security around patient data. So they have to be secure. And part of that is just purely the competitive nature of vendors of saying, yeah, we want to own the data. We want to own the systems and we want to own the processes and everybody's going to work in our system. And so we encourage both vendors to say, hey, if we're going to really make a dent in clinical operations, clinical research, we've got to be willing to play nice with the other vendors. And sites and sponsors need to also be forcing that on their vendors and say, hey, listen, we're not going to buy your system unless you guarantee that it's going to be able to talk to the other platforms we have now and we have in the future. Mm. Oh, man, it's, an, it's interesting. And so another question I have, it's not... Yeah, it's not really related to like what you're talking about, but it's more like personally, like because you're so in the clinical research vertical and in the industry and you pretty much have your hand dipped in everything. Is there sort of any trends on kind of like what most companies are focusing on? Um, just like give you some contents because like me, like obviously the mainstream, they're looking into like clinical trials around COVID and like viruses and whatnot. But like me, I look into like gene therapy clinical trials because I actually have a condition called retinitis pigmentosa. And so um, a lot of, I guess, the advancements come from the gene therapy space. So I'm always looking at like different clinical trials they're running to kind of help that. Um, but I'm also like super interested in like Elon Musk's Neuralink. So I'm looking into like what sort of like neurotech trials are they working on? But based off your experience, like, is there any like industry that's really sticking out to you? No, you know, I, I love that question, Rodney. And we are a bit removed from the scientific side, right? So to be honest, we're a bit removed from the science side of research because we typically are in that what's happening in the operations side. And so to me, what's most interesting right now is decentralized trials, which I know is a term I've already mentioned, but it's really this idea that, um, that the patient can be more in control of their clinical trial and can participate in trials by finding them in other ways than traditional ways of going to the doctor and the doctor saying, oh yeah, I remember hearing about this clinical trial at a conference I was at last week. And so Typically, that's the way it operates, right, is, is you're in this really closed ecosystem. And so I was actually on the call uh, on a call the other day with someone who's building a company that focuses on um, identifying molecular biology and molecular signals that say, hey, if, you know, if the patient has, is presenting these information, which we put into the EMR, EHR, or they get, you know, some kind of, of lab ran, 
that it can then use AI to artificially look at those conditions and match them with existing clinical trials in the space. And so precision medicine, Rodney, is really a big area we hear about. To dive maybe one layer deeper in science, I won't go much deeper, but precision medicine is, is an area that we focus a lot on and hear a lot about. And that is the idea that medical advancements focused on you, the human versus mass trials. And so as you think about COVID, and I'm gonna use COVID as an example, it, whether you're in New York City or you are in Florida or you are a Caucasian individual or an African-American individual, you're going to get the same exact COVID vaccine. Uh, now, there's Moderna and there's a couple of different players, but for the most part, it's going to be the same vaccine. Well, where the industry's headed and, and what's happening is this idea of precision medicine, which is a unique vaccine for you as a human that says, let's take a look at not only the, the condition that you have, but let's also look at the other 15 factors that make you who you are from a molecular, from a biological standpoint and build medicine that targets you as a human. And so that's what's really exciting, I think, is technologies progress to a way where every person can almost receive a very individualized um, medical treatment that's custom designed just for them. And that's where those research trials come in of, of starting to think about identifying those patients and how do you even start to think about that level of uh, individ individualization in research. Oh my God, precision medicine. It's the first time I heard that term. We're in the future. My goodness. That's right. We're living it. We're, we're close to living in the future, Rodney. Uh, I hope it's soon. And, you know, we, we're, we're still trying to get people off paper, Rodney, but I'm hoping that we're only a year away from the next big level up. So, yeah. Oh my God. That's awesome. So, I mean, one more question I have before we kind of get towards the end of the interview is like, what sort of advice would you have for um, professionals who are looking to get dive deeper into the whole clinical research model? Yeah. You know, I think for me, it is the people part of research will never go away. Right. So often when you hear uh, technology and you hear AI and natural language processing and, and all these various things, you, you start thinking, oh gosh, are the roles going to go away? Are they going to be, uh, you know, removed because technology is doing it all? And to some extent, yes, like, right, it, it would be non-transparent of me to say that some of those menial task-based roles may disappear because technology is driving that. But at the end of the day, research is really about people. And, and what is always interesting to me as a technology person and a little bit different in this space is most of the time, if not all the time, somebody participates in a clinical trial because they believe they're going to get a better standard of care than not, not participating in a clinical trial. And they also believe that they're going to get more access to their healthcare professional. And so that is a big reason they participate. And so if we take away those human touches with technology, it may end up inadvertently driving down research because people are like, well, I don't just want to talk to a robot. I really want to go see the doctor. And so that's an area that we focus a lot on. So I would say that somebody's looking to get into research or understand research more is to understand the interplay between processes, people, and technology. And don't just focus on one of those three areas, but say, how is this future really uh, the interplay between these three, three areas? And how can I think about where my role, if I'm looking in, you know, to get into it into a career, I would say, all right, what technologies do I need to learn that'll help me perform this job better? And if I'm looking you know, to invest in research or I'm looking to just understand it better, is really looking for those companies that are not only building great technology, 
but they are also thinking about the people side of that equation. And, you know, at Florence, we call it the, the Florence approach where yes, our technology is really good, but I would say our services side of helping sites navigate technology transformation is just as good, if not better than our technology. And that's what makes us really successful as a company. Dang, awesome. I think that's a perfect way to kind of, um, and the main segment of our interview, I know we kind of been talking for a minute, but you're pretty interesting, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully others listening think the same and they've made it with us this far, so. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, um, like I said, we kind of covered a lot of high level stuff around what you're doing, but I kind of like to end each episode on a little lighter exercise where I like to call it rapid fire round. So I'm just going to ask you a list of questions and you give me whatever answer you come up with. Gotcha. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite book of all time? Rodney, that's hard. I don't know if, if your listeners can see my background or not, but I love books. Um, you know, I, I would probably say two, I'm going to go two directions. One is good to great for, for kind of nonfiction business books. It's a great case study on how to make awesome companies that last. Uh, and the second, if I'm talking about fiction books, I love fiction as well. Uh, you know, a little Ken Follett Pillars of the Earth is, is probably a good one I love to jump into. That's a historical fiction. I'm a big history buff. So anything that has to do with that. Mm, awesome. Yeah, I think I got good to great back there. I just haven't read it yet. Sorry. All right, I recommend it, Rodney. Give it a read. And he's got three others that I recommend as well um, that all are in that same series of books. Ah, okay. Number two, who's the most influential person in your life or career? Definitely. I know this is going to sound cliche, but my CEO, Ryan Jones, you know, he he started Florence and it was really cool. I was working in a, in a function of marketing at a larger company prior to Florence and had never really built marketing from the ground up and never really led a whole marketing function, had never really thought about revenue in the sense of how does it play with the overall company. And so Ron really took a chance and, and said, hey, why don't you come build this thing with us? And, and then has invested resources in me over the last four and a half years to, to not only you know, build a bigger team, but trusting in me to drive a lot of company strategy. And so, yeah, I think his influence uh, over my career journey has been really strong. Ah, okay. Shout out to the CEO. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Number three, what is one goal you want to accomplish this year? Definitely. You know, I think for me, it is Florence is a growing company, right? We, we are, I started in, in the first 10 employees. We're about to cross our hundredth employee and we've double revenue every year, you know, a thousand percent growth over the last three years. And so we're pivoting as a company from a startup to really a scale up growing enterprise type company. And so the goal for me is to learn how to operate in that mindset versus a startup mindset, because it's different worlds, right? Startup is I'm hustling every day. I'm writing blog posts. I'm writing emails. I'm creating websites. I'm, I'm launching AdWord campaigns and, and, uh, and doing all of that. To, to, to crossing that 100 employee mark is really more thinking about how I lead my team. We have a, a large team of marketers now and thinking about how I help connect dots across, across the organization. So for me, that's the, the thing I'm looking forward to is successfully navigating the jump to a larger company uh, and leading a marketing growth function within that company. Oh, okay. I like that. That sounds like an interesting transition. Um, number four, last but not least, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, that what, probably that what you're, what you think you're going to do is not going to be what you do, Rodney. I think at 20, I was getting my mechanical engineering degree at Georgia tech. Uh, and I thought I was going to be an architect and a Disney Imagineer. 
Um, and that was definitely not the case. And so I think that's, that's probably the advice I would give is gosh, since then, you know, it's been well over a decade. I've had, uh, a bunch of different careers, Rodney. I've worked in college athletics. I've worked in nonprofit NGO consulting. I've worked in health systems and now I've worked in technology ecosystems. So I think it would be that what you think you're going to do is probably not going to be what you're going to do. So explore, take on new opportunities and take risk and learn new things. Awesome. I like that. That's <laughs> pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, that kind of ends uh, the rapid fire round and kind of concludes today's episode. So like just want to thank you again for jumping on and sharing what you guys are doing in the clinical research space and how you guys are tackling that vertical. Um, but before we go, where can people connect with you? Where can people learn more about Florence Healthcare? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I love connecting with folks. So LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, backslash Blake G. Adams. Really simple. I got on LinkedIn early, so I didn't have to add a lot of numbers to my name. Uh, so backslash Blake G. Adams on there. Or uh, FlorenceHC.com is our website where you can see more about the company and what we're doing. Um, and yeah, FlorenceHC.com. We'd love to connect. And, and Rodney, thank you so much for having me on today as well. No problem. And I'll be sure to include all those resources, all those links in the resources as well. But with that being said, catch you guys on the next one.